I went to the lead even over heartbreak with like a purpose and with the goal of like dropping people and, um, and injecting pace. And I think that's maybe what surprised me the most is that I was, I was able to be an actual factor and be like something that impacted the way the race played out, uh, which is a new feeling for me in the marathon, um, particularly in world marathon majors, like in New York, I was, as far back as like probably 20th pretty early in the race and uh, was kind of doing my own thing. So that was the biggest surprise being up front and the way we got to the 209.09 here in Boston. That's Scott Fobble. And this is episode 62 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Welcome back to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Scott Fobble, who finished seventh at last month's Boston Marathon in a big personal best of 209.09. More importantly than that, however, Scott was the first ever guest on this podcast back in December 2017, and it was great to have him return to the show. We covered a lot of good stuff in this conversation, all things Boston, of course, but we also got into his training and recovery, what the next several months are going to look like for him heading into the Olympic Trials Marathon next February, how he keeps himself centered and grounded, where his extraordinary ability to push himself in races comes from, what's exciting him in running right now, and a heck of a lot more. Okay, let's dive right in with Scott Fobble. Scott Fobble, welcome back to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks, Mario. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. You are the second returning guest that I've had, only behind Des Linden. That's good company. Yeah. So, (laughs) but you were the original guest. You were the first ever guest on the Morning Shakeout Podcast. So, for those of you listening, go way back in the archives and you can listen to last time Scott and I spoke in episode one, when he was a relatively unknown 212 marathoner, I was a novice podcaster. And look at us now. I've got listeners. You've got fans. We've made it, man. I know. We're, we're, we're doing it big now, Mario. So you're a little over two weeks removed from Boston Marathon. You have done a lot of podcasts. You've done a lot of interviews, media appearances. Are you tired of it all yet? Um, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's part of my job. Um, and it's maybe not the part of my job that I, I love the most. Like the best part of my job is getting out for runs and, and training and that kind of thing and racing, obviously. Um, but I've got a pretty good job, a pretty easy job. Uh, and if like talking to cool people like you and Chris Chavez and Lindsay Hine, and if that's like the worst part of my job, I can live <laughs> with that. What if things looked like for you from a training standpoint since you crossed the finish line on Boylston street? Oh, it's been pretty non-existent. Um, took two weeks completely off, uh, where I was just going on walks with my dog every day. That was my only form of exercise. I'd walk for about an hour or 90 minutes or so. Um, and then yesterday, uh, I had my first run back. I did 30 minutes. Uh, I felt like a wounded deer today. I went out again for another 30 minutes and also felt like a wounded deer. So just kind of, I guess, slowly recallusing the body and getting myself back to like getting, being used to moving and sweating a little bit as opposed to, uh, two weeks there where I was, I was pretty lazy. How does your recovery from Boston compare to your last two marathons? I was definitely more beat up after Boston than I was after the last two. Um, I just, uh, like I was a little tiny bit like dinged up coming into Boston. Like I had had a little bit of some hamstring issues just that had popped up in the last two and a half weeks. And, um, I'd gotten it to the point where like I could run Boston out. I was very, very confident that it was not going to like hamper my performance, but I definitely, definitely re-aggravated that. And, um, I probably was probably compensating for it a little bit either in the race or like just walking around since then. So, um, on these first two runs, I was kind of like feeling my body and feeling like what definitely needs to get like worked on and what do I need to be sure to, um, to do a little rehab on before like the real training starts. 
from an emotional and psychological standpoint, are you still pretty excited or have you come down at all? Um, I would say, yeah, I've definitely come down. Uh, I was very excited at the start and then I was kind of in a spot where it felt like I was catching up to everybody's excitement because like I knew that I could run 209 before Boston even started. And I mean, I caught an A plus day for sure in Boston and, and had a really like kind of performed as well as I could have possibly imagined uh, or expected to. Um, but that was like within the realm of possibilities. And I think for a lot of people who maybe have seen my, my career in a more disjointed and like um, they've seen like results as like points on a timeline, as opposed to me who's been in it every single day, I was excited. and I was proud of that run, but I like always believe that could happen. And I think a lot of other people maybe didn't necessarily see that as like a realistic possibility running 20909. Um, and so they kind of were so high and so excited on the performance. And I was excited too, but it just, there was like a little bit of a gap there, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I'm still excited and I'm still proud of it. And I'll probably always be, be very proud of that run. But uh, I'm, I'm excited to, put new things on my plate now and, and kind of move forward and um, get back into like the present moment. After putting up a result like that, it was your second straight top 10 in a marathon major, obviously a big PR. Do you look at yourself any differently as an athlete now than you did before the race? No, I, I don't. And I don't think that um, I don't hear. Here's why I guess I would say I don't because if I had run really poorly, if like, something had happened and I'd run 217 or 220 or um, something that was really well below what we felt like I could do, that also wouldn't have changed how I feel about myself and my potential and my athletic career. Like, I still have faith in myself and I still would have had faith in myself. And um, I was a pretty confident guy going in and I'm pretty still confident now. And I don't necessarily think this one data point should change how I feel about myself or how I see myself or the process that we take to the next time we prepare for a marathon. Um, in fact, one of the first things I said to Ben when we, um, Ben Rosario, my coach, when we, uh, were kind of debriefing about the race a few days afterwards, I said, I think the biggest mistake we can make is to change what we've been doing. Like we got to this point by following a pretty specific process and we could pick our and choose our spots where we could push. I think the biggest thing, biggest mistake we can make is if we looked at all the training and then immediately cranked everything up and assumed like, Oh, like something changed. Cause that's not really what happened. Um, so yeah. Yeah. It's just having that confidence in the approach that's worked to get you to this point, maybe tweaking some things along the way. Cause you do learn something from mm-hmm. every race, but not getting too far away from, what, like we said, what's got you to this point? Yeah, definitely. What are your biggest takeaways from the race looking back at it now, two weeks later? Um, I think the biggest takeaway that I've, I feel like I have is, um, like really believing in the process, uh, that like I was very, very well prepared, probably even more prepared than I expect than I thought I was. Uh, because if you look at my, my 5k splits, which I know that you, you talked to Ben about after the race as well, I think you texted him a picture of the, the splits or something, but, um, I ran 1503 from 35k to 40k, which is really good. I mean, I think that was my fastest, uh, 5k of the race, but what we felt like was more impressive was the 5k before that from 30 to 35k, which is up two of the Newton Hills and including heartbreak, I ran 15, 17, which, uh, kind of indicated to us that I was really, really capable of handling the downhills efficiently. And then also I was still able to tap into that, like the kind of last gear, the really powerful, um, we're grinding, going to all the way to the finish line with this, um, even up the Newton Hills, I didn't have to just survive them. I could kind of attack them a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, you were 15, 17 through that section of the course, which is one of the slower ones, but you're also in control at that point. I mean, you had put yourself back in the lead. Do you think there was something about being at the front and that feeling of control, which allowed you to put up one of your more impressive 5K splits during that section of the race? Yeah, it was good. I probably wouldn't have run that fast had I not been in a group and particularly in the lead group. Um, so it's definitely like a, I was in a really good place um, emotionally and I was feeling like I was certainly in control and I was feeling like I could um, I could do some damage in the race, which was big. Um, but also, uh, I mean, just physically, I, I still I felt really good and I felt really smooth. Um, so I think that even if for some reason I wasn't up near the front, I still would have been able to click off some good miles there. Did you surprise yourself at all? Because Ben sent me a message after the race and he said it was tough for him to know how fit you were going in because you were at a level in training that was so much higher than you'd ever been at in your previous two buildups. Yeah, I mean, I knew that the time was possible, but the way it happened did kind of surprise me where I was able to be up front and not just like hanging on the back, but like leading and leading and and not like, I didn't really articulate. I think in a couple interviews after Boston, I was like, I was just so happy to be leading the Boston marathon. And that's true. I, I was, and I did soak in that moment of gratitude, but, um, I was not like I was leading in some sort of token way where I was just trying to get a little bit of, uh, a little bit of TV time before, before those guys like dropped me. Like I went to the lead even over heartbreak with like a purpose and with the goal of like dropping people and, um, and injecting pace. And I think that's maybe what surprised me the most is that I was, I was able to be an actual factor and be like something that impacted the way the race played out, uh, which is a new feeling for me in the marathon um, particularly in world marathon majors, like in New York, I was as far back as like probably 20th pretty early in the race and, uh, was kind of doing my own thing. So that was the biggest surprise being up front and the way we got to the two Oh nine Oh nine, um, here in Boston. So being in it for 22 miles, essentially before the pack pulled away from you, we'll get into that specific part of the race, but looking back at it, knowing like, okay, I could lead a world marathon majors race and be in it for 22 miles in an environment like Boston. And yeah, maybe I got my doors blown off the last four miles relative to, you know, what the other guys were, were doing, but does that give you the confidence that with a little bit more experience in the marathon, just racing it from a tactical standpoint and making advances in your training that, eventually you're going to be there in the last mile and in contention to break the tape. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the goal. Um, and that was kind of the goal even before this Boston. Like I, I mentioned that I don't, it's not like I, um, the fact that we had a really good day in Boston changed the way I see myself or the, our process or, um, our beliefs and training or our guiding principles. Um, so I've, I've always felt like eventually I would get to the point where I could be on the podium or I could challenge for a win at one of these, these big races. If, um, if I pick my spots, well, if I'm really, really fit and if I make good decisions on the day, um, I think someday I, I could, and hopefully will give myself a shot in a race like Boston or, or New York. I think those are kind of the, the ones where I will have the best chance. Um, but that being said, you know, I, it's only, it was only my third marathon. It's, I've got a lot of time left in my career and, uh, hopefully that the progress that we've seen keeps or keeps going and continues, but stumbling blocks may come up too. And, um, maybe we have to kind of realign our goals one segment at a time. But, uh, as, as things stand now, I think the long-term goal would be to, eventually be in a position where we could be realistically talking about winning one of these things. Let's go back to before the race. And I want to go through the race itself here in a little bit, but 
race weekend as you were thinking about the task at hand on Monday in your head, how did you think the race was going to play out given the weather conditions and given the players that were part of it? Um, Ben and I hadn't like, we'd, we felt like I was fit enough to run up front in most scenarios. So we didn't really talk too much about, um, different, like different game plans. If a race went this way or that way, really the only contingency plan we talked about was in the case where there was a tailwind or, um, some of the leaders who have run in the two Oh fives and two Oh six sixes, like take it from the gun and like try to run one of those really fast times, which I probably can't do. Um, but other than that, our goal was to just run up front and we didn't really talk about what that might look like. Um, so we didn't we didn't talk about like the actual mechanics of what we thought the race would happen or what we thought would happen in the race. Uh, and then in terms of the weather, I mean, it changed so much. Um, I remember looking at the weather a week early, but a week before the race, when I was kind of like starting to pack and I was wondering what I should pack. And at that point, it looked like it was going to be the same weather as in 2018, which was just a torrential, it was just horrible. It was absolutely awful, as you know. Um, but then it looked like maybe it was going to clear up and maybe it was going to be a tailwind. And then some storms were supposed to roll in the night before and then maybe it was going to rain a bunch. So, I mean, every single day, everyone seemed to be getting different information about what the weather was going to be like. So uh, I didn't really worry about it. I was there to race really hard and I feel like I can do that in any, any weather. So I was pretty um, detached from those kind of things that weekend. Take me through the first 10 K of the race. What's going through your mind as you're running in the pack? First 10 K. I mean, it was pretty low key. Like uh, you get off the line and it's a pretty steep downhill and I just kind of let my legs, my legs roll and I kind of got into my own rhythm and I didn't really mean to go to the front, but all of a sudden I kind of found myself either like right at the front of the race or up near the front of the race. And I just sort of tried to stay in my own rhythm, uh, for those first 10 K. And, um, I made a decision before the race started that I wasn't going to split my watch every single, um, every single mile. So the only way I was like really keeping track of the pace we were running is I would look down at my polar watch uh every mile and see how many seconds under five minute pace we were and that was the only thing i wanted to keep track of um because i knew without a doubt on the weather we had on race day that i could run five minute pace and so that was kind of the only thing that i wanted to keep track of because i felt like it took into account the fact that the boston course is so variable there aren't really like smooth flat um easy miles where you could get into where you could run the actual pace that corresponded with the effort. There's so much downhill and uphill and it's undulating um, that I felt like that was checking how many seconds under five minute pace I was, was a good way to take into account the hills um, while also kind of trusting myself to make good decisions and, and not getting too worried if uh, all of a sudden I was, couple seconds under or a couple seconds over or whatever. So, yeah. Cause I mean, at that point for you, you're on PR pace. If you're running just under five minute pace by probably a minute or so, I think that's what two eleven thirty ish. If you, yeah. if you're maintaining that. And I mean, generally that's going to be good enough to keep you certainly in the top 10 at Boston and in, in a year like this, you know, possibly at the front, depending on how things are rolling. So you get through halfway. I mean, you're quick, you're like 64, 40, or so. Yeah. So you're under 210 pace at halfway. That's a split that's easy to pay attention to because even at that point of the race in your mind, you'd be like, oh shit, well, if I double that, you know, I'm certainly running yeah. under 210. And that's that's a big day for me. When you saw that on your watch or on the clock, what did you think? Um I mean, part of me was really, really excited because I felt it felt right. Like I hadn't it's not like I was straining, I was still relaxed and I was still felt like I was smooth and it felt like the right effort through the halfway mark of the half marathon or of the marathon. But I was also like kind of scared and kind of worried. Like that was 90 seconds faster than I've ever gone out in a marathon. Um, which is, so I was like hurtling into unknown territory pretty fast there. Uh, 
and so I was kind of feeling all those things all at once. And I let myself feel those. And I let myself kind of think about it for a second. And then pretty soon after the halfway mark, I was like, okay, I just have to, like, I can't worry about that. I have to get back to the task at hand. And I just kind of made a note. I was like, okay, all that's just thinking, like, just get back to the rhythm. And um, I kind of let all that stuff go. And I let go of thinking about what pace I was going to run or or what splits were going to end up being what time at the end. Um, I just got back to focusing on on closing the gap and getting back to the lead group because at that point, I was maybe 15 or 20 seconds off the leaders coming through halfway. And when you brought them back, did you do a quick inventory of who was around you and how they looked and how their breathing was? Or were you just focused on yourself at that point, knowing that you got back to the pack, but you were still in a spot where you felt relaxed and you were in the right rhythm? Yeah, when I caught back up to the group, at first I like tucked into the back of the the lead group. And the lead group was still really big at like 16 and a half or 17 miles. I think there were, I mean, probably 20 or 25 guys Um so it was like most of the race up front. And uh, once I tucked into kind of the back of the group, I was like, this is too easy. Like, we're just not running hard enough. This isn't this isn't how I want to be running right now. And I didn't feel as efficient when I was sitting in the back. So after I made the catch to get back up to that lead group, I went around the group again and just kind of went back to the front and ran my own rhythm. And um, Jared Ward was up there as well. And coming through like 16 or 16 and a half miles. Um, I saw my coach Ben Rosario and my teammate Scott Smith uh, along the side of the road. I knew they'd be there. So I was, I was kind of looking out for them and I just kind of flashed him a little thumbs up, flashed him a smile and, uh, and just kept doing my thing and kept leading um, because that's where I felt the best when I was up front. Is that just a very instinctual thing for you at that point? Yeah, it definitely, it just felt right to be up front and have some space and be dictating my own rhythm as opposed to um, like sitting in the back and kind of letting other people do their thing and having to respond. It was nice to have have some space and have a little autonomy. Hey, we're going to take a quick break to thank the sponsor that is helping make this episode possible. It is UCAN. Getting the most out of your training starts with the right nutrition and you can performance energy powders, which is what I use before my big workouts and long races will give you steady, long lasting energy with no spikes and no crashes. It's also used by Olympians like Meb Kofleski, Dathan Ritzenhine and Alexi Pappas. So, you know, it's the real deal. UCAN has a great offer for Morning Shakeout listeners right now. Try out the Performance Energy Sample Pack, which includes three Performance Energy Packets and two Performance Energy Plus Protein Packets for only 10 bucks. You can check out the offer at generationucan.com slash discount slash shakeout. That's U-C-A-N-S-H-A-K-E-O-U-T. And use that same code, shakeout when you check out to receive free shipping. Or you can save 15% on any UCAN item you buy on generationucan.com with the code SHAKEOUT when you check out. My thanks to UCAN for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Take the turn at the firehouse. It's like 17 and a half miles. The hills Mm -hmm. really start in earnest at that point. There was a little bit of yo-yoing, but things didn't separate all that much. Did your mindset change at all once you hit the hills, knowing that was the most elevation change that you're going to see in the course to that point and knowing that's usually where things get shaken up? Um, yes, in the sense that I I knew that the race was going to really start then, because even at the firehouse, there were still, you know, almost 20 guys. And when we made that turn, I think it was pretty soon after that, that Karui, um, made his first kind of push up the first hill. And, uh, I didn't, it was a pretty strong push. So I kind of let myself slip to the back of the group and I made my, like, just followed my own rhythm. And every time that we would crest a hill, um, the leaders would kind of like slam on the brakes and I could just kind of run my own rhythm and then catch up and then eventually go to the front and even a couple times open up a little gap uh, as we were coming up some of those big hills. So, uh, But then every time we'd go back up the next hill, Curry would push again and I'd let myself slip back. So it was similar to earlier in the race where I felt better when I was running my own rhythm and not worrying so much about what was going on around me. 
at any point there, were you thinking about what you could do to possibly pull this off or were you still really focused on just yourself and running your rhythm so that you could have the best result possible? Or I'm just trying to just trying to understand where your head was at at that time. Were you thinking about I could possibly win this thing or I just need to manage myself so that I can finish strong and wherever that lands me, that lands me. Going up the hills. So like from 17 to probably the top of like almost the top of heartbreak at almost 21 miles, I was focusing on myself um, because I wanted to get over heartbreak with my legs still under me. But once I got over heartbreak or once I got to almost the top of heartbreak and I was still in the lead group and the group was down to seven or eight, uh, the way I'd closed some of our long runs, I kind of thought like, man, maybe I could win this thing. Um, but I knew if I was going to, I felt like maybe at 21 miles we were close or we were far enough from the finish. And I was so relatively unknown that maybe if I put in a little surge, they would kind of give me a second. Um, and I could kind of time trial my way home. Cause I knew that if I let those other guys dictate the race and we would slow and surge, and slow and surge that it's not how I was going to win. They can just, they have so much more, such a bigger window to play with. Um, but I thought maybe if I could take a chance at 21 and get away a little bit, maybe I could win it. You get to Cleveland circle and the group just goes, they throw in, they throw in a big surge at that point. Was that no shit moment for you or were you pretty confident that your legs are still under you and you were just going to run your rhythm and whatever happened over that last stretch is what happened? It was kind of both. It was like an oh shit moment right when it happened. And I was kind of, I was like sort of drifting towards fault, like throwing myself a little pity party because I, up to that point, I'd been feeling really good. And when they cranked up the pace, like my legs started hurting and Um, I really went from feeling really good to feeling like I was 22 miles into a marathon, like very quickly. Um, and so I was, I was sort of starting to glaze over and I was kind of like my, I wasn't as able to keep as focused and, um, I was suffering a lot more. And so I had a little stretch there where things weren't, weren't going real well, but I grabbed a cup of water and I like splashed it on my face. Um, and that kind of woke me up and I got back into it and I was like, the move had sort of finished up front and there were three or four guys who were just so far away. There was no way they were going to come back. But then there were a few other guys who weren't that far ahead. And so I just focused on, on the guys in front of me and just trying to bring them back one by one by one. And, um, I caught one guy at like 25 and I just tried to keep my eyes up and, um, keep the pedal down. And I was kind of going to my, my mantras and my power phrases and, uh, just to stay present and stay like engaged um, so that I didn't kind of glaze off and, and lose my rhythm and give away time that I didn't have to. Um, yeah. What were the mantras in those moments? There was, uh, it was keep the pedal down. You're having a day, um, like let it flow. Um, uh, scared money can't win. Um, fuck with me. You know, I got it. That was kind of the, I just sort of was ripping through those as, as quick as I could anytime my like mind, wandered or I started to have like negative thoughts. And are those mantras things that you would rehearse in long runs or during your tough workouts and you would put yourself kind of back in those moments at the end of the race when you really have to dig deep and find something? Yeah, definitely. That was uh yeah, especially this segment when I was doing a lot of those like really long, difficult workouts alone just because nobody else was running Boston this time. Um, and when you're alone out there, you really have to be, um, be a lot more mentally strong than maybe when you're with a teammate. Uh, so I'd had a lot of opportunities to practice that last mile. You've got five minutes of running or so to go. What are you thinking during that final stretch where you're taking a couple turns, the crowds are getting thick you're probably well aware at that point that you're running two Oh something. And this is going to be a big personal best for you. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I saw the clock with one mile to go at the Sitco sign and it said like two Oh four ten, And I remember thinking like, Holy shit, like I could break, I could break two Oh nine today. And so I was focusing on that as well as I could, um, at least till you get to that underpass. 
And when you go up that underpass on the other side, I mean, that's just like it feels like somebody put a mountain on, <laughs> on Commonwealth Ave there. Um, it's a swift kick in the pants at that point of the race. Yeah, definitely. Um, but right as you get to the top of that little underpass, you can hear the crowds on Hereford and then Boylston not far up. Um, and they are so, it was so unbelievably loud that it was, it really like kind of kept me upright and kind of like pushed me forward a little bit. And I mean, the crowds were amazing. I could, I kind of got dialed back in. And even when I made the left turn onto Boylston, I could see the clock and it was a long ways away and it still said 207. And so I was like, man, I can maybe do this. Like, like maybe I can get there in 90 seconds. And so I was just digging as hard as I could. And I mean, there wasn't much left and I was in a lot of pain, but I could just tell myself like, you can go a little deeper. You can go a little deeper. Like, come on, Scott, a little bit deeper now. And, um, it wasn't until like 80 meters to go when I realized I wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna break 209. And luckily I wasn't like battling with anyone for a spot. So I kind of sat up and I kind of like looked at the crowd and I pointed one way and it was really amazing. So it sounded like they got louder and I pointed the other way and I got to soak in those last, those last few meters. And then right when I got across the line, I kind of like put my face to my, or my hands to my face. Cause I like, at that point, like I was just so blown away that like we did it, you know, we had such an amazing day. Were those final meters kind of slow motion for you? Um, they kind of felt like I wasn't, I was kind of watching myself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I was, like, I don't really remember what it felt like to get across the line, but I, I remember what it sort of like looked like in my brain. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a strange feeling where it was like, I, I knew that I was, I didn't feel like I had done it. Like it felt like something else had sort of taken hold of me and, and been the thing that had, had made this race happen. Have you watched the replay since then? A little, Almost yeah, as a, a confirmation bit. to be like, Oh shit, I actually did do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, Holy shit. I was leading over the top of heartbreak and I did rip that last 5k pretty good. Um, yeah, I watched, uh, I think I watched the, whichever one Carrie Tollefson was on. I watched that one because I think the other streams maybe focused a little bit more on the women's race, mm -hmm. um, which I mean, it was obviously a great race, but I wasn't in it. So uh, I've been, I was watching, trying to watch the race I was in. You just described how during that final stretch, as you were digging deep to see if maybe you could break 209, you're telling yourself, keep pushing harder, Scott. Like, you know, just just leave it all out here. Like I know this about you. You have this unique ability to just totally bury yourself on race day. And I'd love to know where that comes from. I mean, part of it, I do think is a little bit innate. It was like, I started running when I was in like fifth grade or something and I was pretty talented. Like I had a pretty high baseline. I could do, I was physically pretty gifted at that point, but I was also just like good at, at, hurting and kind of like tolerating um discomfort even from a pretty early age uh but i think the thing that has helped the thing that's helped me go from like pretty good at it to very good at at tolerating a lot of pain is the fact that i'm at peace with the fact that it's going to happen like i know 100% when i step to the line this is going to hurt a lot and that like certainty of what's coming helps me to um, make the right decisions when the pain really starts sitting, settling in. And I think a lot of people who maybe aren't quite as good at handling um, discomfort, they, they kind of let the pain drive the ship. But if you accept the fact that it's going to be there no matter what, it kind of gives you agency over the discomfort. Um, and you're not spending time worrying about it or blocking it out you're aware it's coming, but it, it doesn't get to be the driving force. You get to drive it sit in the backseat sort of deal. Do you think that's the biggest strength you bring to the table as a marathoner? Yeah. I mean, I mean, physically I'm, I've, you know, as big, long as it took me to acknowledge this, um, I am pretty talented and I am capable of like getting to the line in really good shape. Um, but I think it does, it helps me to, uh, 
to kind of maximize that and to have good days on a consistent basis. Um, and not just in, in racing, uh, but in training on a more consistent basis, I can, I can be really tough and, and grind out some miles where I'm maybe not feeling very good. And I can make, I can turn mediocre days into good days and bad days into mediocre days, maybe a little bit better than some other people. You finished seventh for the second straight time at a major marathon. I know going into the race, you had a goal of top five. As you've described, it was a very exciting day for you. Gives you a lot of confidence, gets you excited for the next one. On some level, do you look at that and say, God damn it, like, what do I need to do to get into the top five or get myself on the podium? And am I capable of that? Does that ever run through your mind when you think about your last performances? Uh, more so like Boston, I guess, because I was there, you know, like in New York. I didn't really feel like I, I, I didn't, wasn't, I didn't put myself in the race because that, I mean, I, that wouldn't have been a good decision for me in terms of what I was physically capable of doing. So I was kind of coming from behind anyways and cleaning, getting, cleaning up guys when I could. But, uh, in Boston, I was there, you know, I was so close and I felt really attainable. Um, but I also kind of know that if you look at the success of, of most, particularly American marathoners, um, who have like won a major marathon, like Meb, Shalane and Dez, they ran so many marathons before they won one. Like you just have to give yourself a lot of opportunities because these races, they can play out so differently year to year. And, um, you know, there's variables given like who's in it and who uh, is having a good day and who's having a bad day. And if you can just keep putting yourself in positions to getting yourself to those start lines really, really fit enough times. Eventually, I I believe it's going to happen. Where do you have the most room to grow as a marathoner, in your opinion? Um, I mean, that's a good question. That's kind of more of a question for Ben, I think, because I, uh, I don't necessarily... Um, have a lot of input or like want a lot of input into like my training. Um, I want, I trust Ben to do a good job and to give me the workouts that I need and the training that I need. And, uh, I just want to do my job well and let him do his job well. Um, so in terms of the physical tools, I'm not, not really sure. Um, mentally, I think maybe I could get to a point where I could take a chance earlier in the race um, but the physical tools have to be there as well. If I had taken a chance earlier in Boston, say like 10 or 11 miles or 12 miles, and maybe tried to put in a move and get cute out there. Maybe I, that would have, maybe that would have blown up on my, on me. But, um, yeah, I guess I, there's willingness to take risks, I think is maybe where I could grow. You and Jared Ward have been kind of buddy, buddy last couple marathons. You've flip-flopped places from New York to Boston. He was ahead of you in New York. You were just ahead of him in Boston. You guys have raced each other numerous times through the years, going back all the way to college. What does it do for you in a race like Boston and even back to New York when you see him around you? He's obviously a more experienced marathoner. He's made an Olympic team. He's finished sixth at the games. Is that comforting? For you when you have him around you in a race? Yeah, I think it's definitely calming because I know not only is Jared very, very good and very, very talented, but he's cerebral, he's solid, he doesn't take wild, make wild choices and, and take silly chances and, and do funny things in the race. He I know that he's he's smart and uh so having him there is kind of like, it's a nice validation of the decisions I've made on that race to put myself in um, the same position as Jared. Um, and then I think there's a number of people like this, but Jared in particular is probably the best example. Is that when I race Jared, like I absolutely get the best of myself, out of myself. And I know that he does as well um, because he's, I mean, he's a very good friend of mine, but he's also someone that I really really want to always, always beat. And I know that he probably feels exactly the same way, but just cause he's such a solid runner and such a really good guy. And we have such a good friendship. I think 
it kind of takes away or it kind of amplifies our um our level of competitiveness last bit on boston before we move on to other topics and i'm going to put you on the spot since new york was your last marathon there's always this debate what's a more special race boston or new york but given that you've just run both of those races new york last fall boston this spring which one had a better energy to it in your experience oof um I would say they're different. Boston feels like a hometown race where it's like, it's, it feels much more intimate than New York. Um, I'm sure there are people in Boston who have like come, gone to the same corner or spectated from the same spot like for 20 years or something like that. And it has more tradition, I think, than New York in terms of the spectator's relationship to the race. Um, but it's hard to beat New York. I mean, New York is, it's so vibrant and so diverse. And I mean, there are so many people on the course, uh, the, the, they're both really special in their own ways. Um, and I, I think I probably had a better experience at Boston because I was up front. I've never been up front in New York. And I, I imagine that that's a pretty wild, wild thing. That's a very diplomatic answer, but I'll let it slide. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, Mario, I'm, you know, I'm going to go back to these races and these guys are going to hopefully, uh, pay me appearance fees. So I, I don't want to get on one person's good side and one person's bad side. So MK, Monty, um, I love both your races so much if you're listening. I, t- I, I totally get it. I'm running New York this fall for the first time and I've run nice. Boston four times and I'm from the Boston area. So I'm clearly biased, but I am very excited to experience the energy of, of New York City. But you know, there's Boston, New York rivalries in everything, and it certainly extends to running as much as it does baseball and other sports as well. Yeah, definitely. What do things look like for you in the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months? I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about how your training will progress these next couple of weeks as you get back into it. You mentioned how you've gone for two 30-ish minute runs now and you feel like a wounded deer, but when will you do another long run, one will workout start again. Have you and Ben talked much about what the rest of this spring and summer will look like for you? Um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, we, we've talked about kind of when I want to race and nothing is really dialed in yet, but we want to do a lot of like shorter stuff and a lot of really fun, like race opportunities where we're not necessarily chasing times too often, but we want to find races where I can, I can hopefully compete up front and just get myself into as many, um, race scenarios as possible and do some, some shorter training that I haven't really gotten to do for about a year now, since I was getting ready for Boston this last winter and spring and then New York in the previous fall. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to, to do that new kind of stuff, uh, in terms of the really short term, Um, I've probably got two weeks now where I'm just going to be running easy and kind of making sure the body's all, all there and all, all healthy, um, before I start workouts and then workouts will start real easy. You know, I'll do like, um, probably my first workout will be like 12 by one minute on one minute off. And then I'll probably have like four miles at marathon effort and we'll just kind of build from there week by week. Um, after, you know, another two weeks of running super easy. So it's like a solid month of rest yeah. and recovery before you really get yourself back onto a schedule. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. And last couple of marathons, when you've come out of them, how have you felt once you've gotten back to that point when you've started training again? Is it tough to get motivated or by a month removed from the marathon, are you pretty excited to get after it again? Um, uh, the last time, like after New York, uh, I took the full, I took the full two weeks. I took the two weeks where I was just running easy. And after that, I was like really excited to work out again, uh, and kind of get back to training. And then I had my first couple workouts and they, I just, I obviously was just not fit at all. And so they, they were kind of a struggle and I didn't feel real smooth. And I think then maybe my enthusiasm like waned a little bit until my fitness came back around and I was able to kind of, um, do cool stuff in workouts again. Um, which, which is kind of what I was, what I like and what I was excited for when I can feel in control and 
um, like push on workouts and take some chances and, and press myself as opposed to kind of just trying to struggle through it. Yeah. And a lot of marathoners, even age groupers, they struggle with taking that time off after a race because they're afraid of losing that hard earned fitness. And the reality of it is you almost have to decondition yourself a bit so that you can make gains again. How important is that time for you after a marathon? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's crucial. I like tried not to think even about running all that much. I just kind of wanted to step away from it for two weeks and, um, and just do all the stuff that I don't really let myself do or get to do during, um, during training for a number of reasons. But, um, so, you know, I was, I was drinking plenty of beer and, uh, I was going on long hikes with the dog and doing stuff that I, my legs don't feel good enough to do, or I kind of like try to be more disciplined than during the season. Um, so I think mentally more than anything, it's, it's really important to, to step away, whether it's after a good work race or a bad race, because it's just the process of getting there and even racing itself is so emotionally difficult and so emotionally stressful that you really need to step back, um, and, and reset and let yourself, let yourself want to run again. Getting back to racing, do you think you'll get on the track at all or are those days behind you at this point? Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I'll never get on the track again, but, um, I don't want really have any interest in doing that this summer or fall or anything like that. And do you think you'll run a fall marathon ahead of the trials in Atlanta, February, 2020, or will Boston have been your last marathon before that race? Boston will be my last one. Uh, I want to get back to doing some shorter stuff and I'd like to take a crack at my half marathon PR and, um, and I think physiologically that's kind of what I need as well right now too. I I'd like to do a lot of like lactate threshold stuff and, and hit some gears that I, I didn't get to hit as I trained for Boston, and New York so much that top end speed and stuff. And, um, I think that'll help a lot going into the the trials more than another marathon segment. Yeah. Just change that stimulus yeah, and hopefully get sure. better response out of it. Mm-hmm. Outside of training and racing, you have put a lot of effort into, I even hate saying this, but building your brand and connecting with your fans. And now you have a lot more fans to connect with who are interested in you after what you've done at Boston just a couple of weeks ago. Have you thought any more about how you'll continue to do that moving forward? You came out with the inside marathon book last fall with coach Ben. You have done a lot of podcasts. You've done a lot of appearances in places that you've been. How else do you continue to connect with your new fans and share your journey with them? Um, you know, I don't really want to change a bunch. Uh, I was kind of at peace before Boston with like knowing that I'll, I'll maybe never be the guy with the the most fans, but the people who like me, they, I'm like their person. And I kind of liked that because I like getting to do some of these events and, um, getting to meet some people who, who followed me on, on social media. Like, I really like those people. We're kind of interested in the same things and, um, see the world in similar ways. And, uh, I never really want to get to a point where I don't enjoy meeting the people who follow me. Um, so I don't really want to change the way that I'm putting out content or engaging with people. Um, because I think I've, I've attracted a group of people who, uh, who are similar to me and who, who enjoy kind of the same things. And that's, that's a really cool thing to me. Um, and it's more cool to me than maybe having more followers or more fans. I like that we have like our own little, we've got a lot of brand loyalty. You're a pretty introverted person by nature. Does that ever get exhausting for you given all of that? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's hard for me to be like on and, um, sometimes at events or at during podcasts or interviews, I feel myself snapping into like interview mode where I just kind of say these sort of pre thought of things that don't actually mean anything. And there's sort of these canned answers. And, uh, I've been working to try to be mindful of when I, when I do that and 
get away from that because that's not interesting to me and it's not interesting to the people who are listening and it's doesn't help the person who I'm talking to at all. Like whether it's a podcast or an interview or at an event, it doesn't, nobody benefits from that. Um, and I've found that it's, it's easier for me to, to do these events in a way that feels natural and authentic when, when I get out of that mode, uh, and try to be, be more honest and, and less calculated. How do you recharge from those stretches where you have to be on like you were Boston weekend and even doing the book tour before that? Uh, I, you know, I think meditating has helped me a lot. Um, just kind of bringing myself back into the moment and, um, uh, and tur- like resetting and turning off a little bit, um, as opposed to like, maybe what I would have done before I had started a meditation practice would have been like, I'm just going to watch TNT and mindlessly stare at my phone for like 40 minutes and then go to bed. And that's not, that's fine. Like it's a way to turn off your brain, but, um, it's not, you're not really present. Uh, so I like, I like bringing myself back into kind of the present moment. Do you have any other strategies that you employ besides meditation to do that? To bring myself back into the present moment, you mean? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of, I guess, mindfulness-based techniques that aren't formal meditation, like um, grounding where you just, you focus on, maybe it's just your feet touching the ground and the pressure that you feel there and sort of that sensation, or maybe you just tap into like one or two of your senses to really feel like what something smells like or what a, a situation smells like or what um, what you can hear around you that you would usually tone out but um, will maybe help you to kind of bring yourself back to a more centered place. Before we wrap up, let's switch gears here a little bit. London Marathon was this past weekend on Mm -hmm. Sunday. We were both up early watching that show. What was going through your mind as you were watching it? Do you watch it through one lens as an athlete or can you watch it as an athlete and a fan? I mean, I hope I watch it from like a fan perspective first. Um, and then, then kind of as an athlete, I'd say I, I kind of analyze it as an from an athlete perspective after the fact, but when I'm watching it, I really try to just be a fan of the sport. Um, and to be honest at this point, like Kipchoge's performance was so brilliant and so beautiful. And so, um, like dominant that it was kind of like a boring race to watch <laughs> because everybody else was so maxed out that there there was no way anyone was going to be able to mount a counterattack. Um, the only thing, the thing that was the most interesting to me is like you could tell that Kipchoge was surprised that people were there at like 30K because they got through halfway pretty fast and the Pacers dropped off. And then as soon as the Pacers dropped off, he ran like a 14-10 or something, 5K. And I think he expected to win it right there. So I think he was surprised that um, that there were still people around him, even as late as there were. Do you think he can be beat anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, you know, he could get sick or something, or one of his shoes could come off or something. But <laughs> it's going to take an act of God to take yeah, him down. I think if he's healthy and and fit, he's got to be like an overwhelming favorite. Um. But, you know, I mean, it's possible. It's just unlikely. (laughs) What do you take away from watching an athlete like him who is at the top of his game and clearly on another level? Um, I mean, I I think the thing that I've taken away from Kipchoge is his comments kind of about... He feels very, like, divorced from the storylines like I have a feeling that he doesn't really care who else is in the race or if there was some weird thing where the day before the London marathon, the marathon organizers had to like change the course. I don't really think it would bother Kipchoge very much where it would definitely bother other people. And I think that's what I like the most that he's, he seems really detached from stuff that doesn't, that he can't control. And I think that's a cool thing that I, that I appreciate about him. Is that something you're trying to work more into 
your own your own outlook when you're looking at races that you're preparing for and some of the people that you could possibly be racing against? Yeah, I would I would certainly love to be be more like Kipchoge in the sense that I'm just going to go out there and and do my own thing and um that'll be good enough and he has a little bit of advantage over me in that regard because he's so much better that if he just does his own thing, then he will probably win. Um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I, I really admire that about him. Last bit. And I like to ask this question a lot to wrap up podcasts, but what is exciting you in running right now, aside from your recent personal best? What's, what's exciting to me? Um, the last thing, I mean, London was great. Uh, Boston was really fun. One thing that is really interesting and exciting to me right now are uh, examples of people who are kind of, it feels like they're doing things their way. Um, and like a good example of that, I think was was the Speed Project. There were those, I mean, I think there were, there were two um, women's only team who were like going for the course record. And I was, I have some friends on, on one of the teams, Gene Mack, who now lives in San Francisco. And um I sort of know a couple like Leanne Shrek. And so I was following their team really closely. And I, I thought that that was a really cool and like kind of pure and distilled form of running where they were just, they were just out there putting one foot in front of the other and it was like unsanctioned and there were no bibs. And um, that was a cool thing that I thought was unique and, and fun to follow. There's a lot of that going on right now we're seeing like take the bridge in a lot of cities which has a very similar rogue feel to it to the speed project and a lot of these things that aren't sanctioned events or competitive running as we tend to think of it but they're competitive and unique in their own way and it generates excitement around running i i often wonder and this is just me thinking out loud right now like what that does for the sport does it support it or is it going to have people pay more attention to these things because, you know, they're new and exciting. Whereas on some level, the sport just hasn't done anything to innovate or bring in new fans. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I guess I kind of see it in a similar way to like the and one mixtape tour circa <laughs> like 2000 in ba- basketball. basketball. Yeah. I remember that. That was my, yeah. that was my jam back then. For sure. Like the professor and, um, who was the big guy? Escalade. Was that, a, that was a guy, right? Escalade. Escalade he was, really big. was a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, it wasn't necessarily the and it wasn't the NBA or the NCAA, but it was, it was something cool and different. And that didn't detract from the sec- success of the, of the NBA, but, by any means. Um, so I, I think the more creative storytellers and the more creative stories that we can write about, about running is, is going to be great. And whether that's the speed project or the Boston marathon or the Leadville 100 or Western States or, um, the, you know, the Coconino Cowboys, like running crazy, um, training runs in the Grand Canyon, whatever is going to get people's get fans in the door, I think is going to be good for the sport. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And that's one of my main goals with this podcast and the morning shakeout in general is to expose people to that and show that there are cool things happening at the Boston Marathon in New York City and traditional races and in college and all of that. But there's some pretty cool stuff happening outside of that that I think can really support those things and just really strengthen this this running culture it's a term that gets thrown around quite a bit now and it means different things to different people but it's all centered around this this one thing this anchor which is running and that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool yeah and i think that um maybe one of the one of the struggles that the sport has had over the last few years is there's kind of this this feeling where um other people have to be wrong if they're not doing the same thing that right. everyone else is doing. But you know, like somebody doesn't have to be wrong just because they're not necessarily right or they're not necessarily in the mainstream. And I think the more we can get away from the mainstream is great because I mean, I don't necessarily trust the people at like 
USATF or in the mainstream to tell the the story of the sport in an effective way. We're still having like really enticing, really interesting indoor races, distance races that are getting cut away from in the middle of the race. It's just how's that going to grow the sport? But seeing a bunch of like badass women run 35 hours through the night to get from LA to Vegas is super cool. Like that's maybe you can't watch that all at once, but you can read about it or you can follow it on social media and you can be intrigued by that. So um, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Scott Fobble, thanks for coming back on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me, Mario. All right, that's a wrap on this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the podcast, please go to the podcast app that you're listening to this on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever it is, and leave a rating and a review. It would really mean a lot to me. It helps new listeners to discover the show, and it's the easiest way to show your support. A big thank you to UCAN for sponsoring this episode. UCAN is offering a great deal to Morning Shakeout listeners right now. That's you. You can try out the Performance Energy Sample Pack, which includes three Performance Energy Packets, two Performance Energy Plus Protein Packets for only 10 bucks. You can check that offer out at generationucan.com slash discount slash shakeout. That's U-C-A-N-S-H-A-K-E-O-U-T and use that same code you can shake out when you check out to get free shipping. Or you can save 15% on any UCAN item that you buy on generationucan.com with the code SHAKEOUT when you check out. I'd also like to thank my man John Summerford at bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for the show, including the music, which he produced himself, and he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. You'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening that I think you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.